Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies and in this case the comics behind the comic book movies. Uh, I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to discuss a particular comic is... David Hartrick. Uh, So welcome back David. Um, Thank you. This is uh, a special episode that we're actually doing as a Patreon early access exclusive. Uh, If we ever hit a week in a few weeks or months' time where we suddenly don't have an episode for some reason, it might get released on the public feed. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, this is coming exclusively to those of you who back us on Patreon, so thanks very much for doing that. Um, Those of you who listened to the previous bonus episode with David on it may recall we talked about the 90s Death of Superman arc, and uh, I think that proved... Well, if not popular enough, we enjoyed it enough that we decided <laughs> to do another one. Uh, David, for those who didn't listen to that episode, do you want to uh, remind everybody who you are, where you come from, that sort uh, of thing? Yeah, there'll be very little crossover into the cinematic universe world, but I'm predominantly a football writer and work for Opta and publish football books and what have you. But in my uh, in my spare time, I'm a comic book fanatic, basically. And we're talking about something that's especially dear to my heart tonight. Uh, and for for those, because um, I'm sure I'm sure we're not the only two people in the world who like comics and football. Uh, <laughs> for those who do also like football, um, what what re- recent releases are there from your publisher, Ockley Books, that people might want to check out? Uh, I would point them towards Daniel Story's Portrait of an Icon uh, series, which we have published uh, for the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. Um, and £10 of every copy is going back to that foundation, and it is a terrific read, uh, covering 57 of sort of the greatest managers and footballers ever to have been in the game, and there's lots of artwork, and yeah, it's it's we've had some wonderful feedback on it, so that's the one I'll point them towards for the minute. We could have done that at the end of the episode like people do, but I figure if we do it now, people can't skip it, and it is for <laughs> yeah. a good cause. So. I mean, they yeah. could skip it, but, you know, they, yeah. Um, yeah, so as David said, we are doing uh, another 90s comic that's very dear to his heart. Um, I'll, I'll get David to explain exactly how dear to his heart in a minute. I'm interested to see, from, from your point of view, David, how this compares to Death and Return of Superman, because I, I have opinions on how the two compare, and I, I'm sure you will as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is Nightfall, uh, not the upcoming TV series um, that, that ruins all Google searches for this comic from now on, uh, but the 1993-94 to 94 
Batman crossover storyline. It ran through all of the Batman titles and a few associated Bat family titles as well. Um, now, when we say Nightfall, there is a it's a little bit like Death and Return of Superman in that there's uh, there's actually kind of multiple story arcs to talk about. Um, the the original Nightfall arc um, actually ran for I think it was about six months, but then there were follow up storylines, Night Quest and Night's End. And in general, when people talk about Nightfall nowadays, they talk about the entire arc that, that kind of runs over that whole year or more, um, rather than just the initial Nightfall part. And that's what we'll be doing as well. We'll, we'll break it down into the three sections. Um, but we, we are really talking about the kind of the first arc, which is uh, when Batman had his back broken by Bane. Uh, the second arc in which he's replaced by Jean-Paul Valley, a.k.a. Azrael, as Batman. And the third arc in which he returns to reclaim the mantle, essentially. Uh, and I know I've spoiled the whole thing there, but just in case you really didn't know um, where, where it actually, what, what actually happens in it and what it's all about. Um, this storyline was... It's, it's tempting to look at it as a response to the Death and Return of Superman, but it, the people who created it have gone on record as saying that no it really was in development before that happened it wasn't just a case of they've had a big successful storyline with superman and then they want to do a similar thing with batman it had been in development for a couple of years with the various batman writers um the creative team on it predominantly are uh, denny o'neill who was the kind of main line editor and who kind of conceived the whole thing and writes some of the issues um chuck dixon and doug mensch are the two main writers on the batman on batman and detective comics uh, and they tend to handle pretty much all of the writing chores. Chuck Dixon was also also writing Robin. Uh, Alan Grant, who people may know from 2000 AD mostly, um, was writing Shadow of the Bat, and some issues of Shadow of the Bat also get pulled into it. So it's sort of a, an interesting comparison with Death and Return of Superman is that there's fewer writers generally working on it. It's sort of There weren't four Bat titles um, in the same way that there were with Superman, and it's not really a case of four distinct titles with four distinct voices it's really kind of one storyline with a i think there's a there's a much more consistent through line in the titles you can't really tell an issue of batman from an issue of detective comics apart from a few kind of quirks and art styles but we'll come to all of that i've, I've rambled off on enough explaining all about it uh so david um why don't you tell us a bit about your history with this and your your feelings about it um basically it's it's the the thing that got me into comics i'd sort of been flirting with various things up until this point but there was that i i got the first um trade so i didn't get it in single issues i got the very first trade and there was something about it and the the world it sort of created that just drew me in <laughs> unlike anything before and this was pre-internet so i couldn't go up and look up who these people were so it just drove me into this crazy uh, sort of desire to find out who everybody was, hunt down the issues, find out what happens next, find out what's leading up to this. And I got into comics from this point and started reading regularly um, from this point in about probably 90, it would have been late 1994. But I was going back and sort of completing this series and going back a couple of years previous I probably only completed it genuinely in terms of getting individual issues. I reckon probably about a decade later, because you're. We talked a little bit on Death of Superman about how these events are slightly more operatic and how they go over a far wider scale. If you there is there is a a, 
a lot of debate how many issues you can include in this arc, but it starts <laughs> at about seventy. It. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Starts at about seventy. So when when you're going hunting, that is a that is a proper quest <laughs> to find. Yeah, this is a funny one because I mean, even more so than again, we probably we probably. Uh, talked about a similar thing with death and return of superman but actually drawing the line of where this starts where it ends and and even which issues in the middle actually count is a tricky one yeah um i think everyone can agree that the real starting point is a one shot called vengeance of bane uh which despite the fact that it's called vengeance of bane introduces the character of bane for the first <laughs> yeah. time um, he then starts to show up in the Batman titles as a sort of looming threat, but the f- those first couple of issues, they're not branded as Nightfall, and they don't tend to be collected in any of the collected editions. Um, this this has had a really this run has had a really weird history in terms of how it's been collected. Yeah. Um, I I like many people first read this not in the single issues, but in the trade paperbacks that came out shortly after it was published, a little bit like I did with Death and Return of Superman. Mm. Um, and in, with that, they collected it into three books. Uh, there was Nightfall, Broken Bat, which start doesn't include the Vengeance of Bane one shot. Starts with uh, an issue. Ironically, it starts with the the issue before the issues that started to be branded as Nightfall on the issues. Yeah. So if you're just reading the single issues, um, Nightfall chapter one is Batman issue 492, uh, which begins after. Um, Basically, all the criminals have been broken out of Arkham Asylum by Bane. Um, but the, the collected edition starts you with Batman 491, which shows that actually happening. But it doesn't give you any introduction as to who Bane is. He's just there, and it just expects you to get on with it. Um, that runs up to the point at which uh, Batman has his back broken by Bane. Um, then the second volume is called Nightfall, Who Rules the Night? And that runs. That basically shows Jean-Paul Valley starting to take over as Batman. If you if you don't know who Jean-Paul Valley is, don't worry, we're going to get to that. <laughs> um, and runs up to the point at which he defeats Bane and uh, puts on his new Batman costume for the first time. Again, we're going to get to that. Um, there's then a sort of several months worth of storyline called Night Quest, branded as such in the issues which was never collected originally. Uh, it um, The collected editions jump straight to Night's End. So if you were reading it in the trades, like I do, you have this bizarre thing where yeah. you leave Jean-Paul Valley as Batman, as having taken over as Batman, and then all of a sudden you're in the midst of a storyline where he's become a complete psychopath and Batman's <laughs> come back to take over. And you're like, well, how did this happen? Now, I do remember getting to read, my dad must have picked them up from somewhere, some of the individual Night Quest issues, because I remember reading uh, I remember really enjoying the fact that Jean-Paul Valley had a, a subway rocket that was basically a Batmobile that <laughs> ran on subway tracks. But other than that, I just you know didn't follow that storyline at all, and I think the point where I first got some of the storyline filled in was the novelization of Nightfall that that's was written exactly, by Denny O'Neill. That's exactly um, what I was going to say, because what when I read the trades the, the big black hole for me wasn't so much the uh the the missing part between part two and and night's end it was where bruce went because bruce disappears in in part two um yeah in part two to there's quite a convoluted story which is probably not worth going into but involving his doctor mm. and he disappears off 
And then he comes back, and there's no explanation. There's no through line. There's no pickup of <laughs> you don't, that story. You don't know how he's got there. Yeah. No. And it's the even even if you're reading it in. So there was a new set of collected editions in 2012, which sort of finally started to straighten things out a bit better. They included stuff like the Vengeance of Bane one shot in the first part. Mm. Finally, the the Jean Paul Valley issues of Night Quest, which were called Night Quest: The Crusade, were collected in a in a, a you know the second book essentially, then the third book was Night's End. Um, but the but the Bruce issues, which kind of ran parallel, they, I think part of the thing is they weren't in the main Batman titles. There's the storyline Night Quest: The Search, which is basically Bruce leaving Gotham um, to um, while still in a wheelchair um, from having had his back broken by Bane and tracking down and rescuing his doctor and then eventually recovering. Um, they take place in issues bizarrely of Justice League Task Force, three issues of Shadow of the Bat, which, as I say, was the sort of it was a Batman title, but it was where they would tend to do standalone, interesting stories rather than stuff tied up mm. in the main continuity. Um, and then three issues of Legends of the Dark Knight, which was launched as a series to tell flashback stories of the early days of Batman. And then as they were getting towards the end of Night Quest and going into Night's End, they were running out of time to get the storyline finished because DC were doing a massive reboot crossover called Zero Hour in 1994. So they pulled in a few issues of Legends of the Dark Knight just to tell part of the crossover just so they could actually get to the end. So, so Nightfall takes place over a good kind of six months or so. I think, well, the first part of Nightfall and then second part over a few more months. Night Quest, similarly, you get, as I say, maybe about like six to eight months of, of Batman comics, maybe slightly less than that actually, but with, with Jean-Paul Valley as Batman. And then all of a sudden, Night's End happens really quickly and everything's sort of, sort of resolved. But not completely. But again, we'll come to that. I feel like we're, we're sort of prevaricating around discussing some of this, and I realise we're assuming a bit of knowledge about the plot. Um, so let's sort of let let's get into Nightfall then. So the you know, as I say, the premise of Nightfall is a villain called Bane comes to Gotham City uh, with the sole intent of destroying Batman because he while while growing up in a prison on a South American island, he has become obsessed. He hears about Batman and he's become obsessed with the idea of Batman. So yeah. he goes to Gotham to destroy Batman uh, and succeeds. And and what we get is a storyline really that is about um, it's about challenging it's about challenging the idea as with Death of Superman that Batman was no longer relevant. And so what it says is, let's take Batman away. Let's replace him with a hero that is more like the kind of hero that you think you want. You know, a gun-toting '90s um, super vigilante, yeah, and let's show you that that's not the right kind of hero, and then let's bring Batman back more heroically. Mm. Um, I feel it's not wholly successful in all of this, the way that um, Death and Return of Superman is. Um, but yeah, let's let's sort of get into how it actually, how that actually unfolds. So, talk us through the beginnings of Nightfall. Well. Uh, <laughs> I think you've got to go back to two earlier series to introduce sort of two concepts that are really key. And that's, you talked about Legends of the Dark Knight. If you go back to issue 16, which was in, I think it started 1990, and I think the Venom storyline actually finished in 1991, it introduces, um, it fleshes out Santa Prisca, which I think at that point had, had only appeared in a issue of The Question, though I might be wrong about that. Um, but it in- introduces Venom, 
so the the super drug venom and basically quite interesting the the interesting thing of note in that story is that it it starts with a batman failure a little girl drowns because he can't shift a load of rocks out the way um and therefore it eventually turns him towards trying this trying this super drug that he knows very little about becomes addicted because it's programmed to be highly addictive because they're trying to weaponize weaponize it so they get an army um and chaos ensues batman eventually gets gets off of venom um and that's what so that's one concept introduced then in 1992 you got uh sword of azrael which was where they introduced the character of Jean-Paul Valley, um, and to the easiest way I can sort of explain it without going into too much detail is basically an ancient cult has uh, an assassin that does their bidding for them. Essentially, they are trained from birth through subliminal. Uh, spl- oh, I can't say the word. You know exactly what <laughs> I mean. Subliminal. That's it. Subliminal uh, messaging. Um, and I, I, I like the concept with with Jean Paul Valley that he's sort of like he doesn't actually get trained; he just gets hypnotized. Yeah, and, and something called the system that is essentially a computer program in his head, um, you know, gives him these abilities essentially. Yeah, and the his father basically his father dies. He has to. This, there's a little. Again, it sounds crazy without explaining further, but there's a little character <laughs> hey, called Noma, comics. <laughs> yeah, basically, who's sort of uh, enacts the personality within him, and basically, the arc the arc finishes quite abruptly, and basically, Jean Paul Valley finishes as he takes his helmet off and says, "You know, I am I am human." It without leaping to the end it almost finishes in a very similar fashion to night's end basically mm-hmm. and he he wants to be jean paul valley and not azrael because everyone before him has basically been consumed by the personality of azrael the suit is very very similar the azrael suit at this point to what we will see in the future but when they were when they were creating this character they thought they were creating a a a hero they didn't realized exactly what they were going to do with him so it was peter milligan that originally pitched the idea and then at a sort of writer's retreat they decided to create bane and create the story and bring jean paul valley through as the man who will take over the mantle because at one point it was going to be it was going to leap straight to dick so jean paul valley starts as this sort of character with a self-contained arc who becomes part of the family but then they sort of have to introduce a bit of an edge to him over a few issues and he's sort of desperate to please but he's not quite he's he's you know robin's slightly untrusting of him and they put him in a they put him in a costume that's a bit too close to azrael at one point and so there's you know it's building towards something and then we come to vengeance of bane where bane is raised on santa prisca and uh, he's he's in prison. He's basically born in prison. Kills his first uh, inmate when he's about six. And Vengeance of Bane, which I think is probably quite reflective of what was happening in comics at the time, it's pretty grim. You know, you've got his his mother dying and being tossed to the sharks. You've got 
Uh, he, I think the first inmate he kills, if memory serves, is, is basically, essentially, although it's not explicitly laid out, but he's basically saying he's going to rape him. Um, it's it's grim. It's, it's grim. It's really, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 find the, I find Bane's origin quite interesting. I think, again, because long before I read Vengeance of Bane, I read the Nightfall novel. And the Nightfall novel is interesting, and it's kind of problematic in some ways, and some ways in which it's sort of O'Neill goes a little bit too far to kind of try and make it a bit a bit grown up and a bit gritty. Mm. Um, and there's some ways in which he sort of um, again sort of tries to kind of real world some some aspects of the Batman mythos, so like like for example the you know the Batmobile, which at this point in the comics the Batmobile was at its most over designed. Yeah. Uh, I think it was was it actually Norm Brayfogle who designed this version? Yes. Um, yeah, Norm yeah. Brayfogle is, is is one of the artists on the Batman books at this time. By the way, the best artist on the Batman books at this time. But, <laughs> but we'll talk about the art in a bit. And the the Batmobile of this era is so comics and so ridiculous, and it's brilliant. I love this Batmobile design. In the in the in the novel, O'Neill goes in the opposite direction and actually says that the Batmobile is just a black sports car, <laughs> and, that it, yeah. and that the Batmobile is just a nickname that Alfred gives it. Um, it's things like that, and it's and it is it's a good reading places. But the Bane stuff is interesting because. When I read Vengeance of Bane now, it feels to me like an overly simplified version of the detailed origin that he gets in the book. Mm. Even though Vengeance of Bane came first, the, you know the book is a fleshing out of the comic, but the comic feels like a, a weak adaptation of the book to me. Mm. Um, and I, I think that I think the Bane stuff in the book is is the stuff that's the most interesting. And I think it's 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 worth dwelling on Bane for a bit actually because. Um, Partly because you know, if you're listening to this with more of a background in the movies, as some people will, obviously you'll know Bane from two movies, um, not just one. Um, his use in Batman and Robin, the the less said about which, the better, and of course in Dark Knight Rises, which I think got you know turned him into a very different character, but I think still had some of the elements that that make the comic version interesting. And I think it's easy to write Bane off as being a bit like Doomsday in Death and Return of Superman in that, you know, here's this big hulking villain character that was created for the sole purpose of this storyline where he's going to come in and defeat the hero. And Bane looks ridiculous. He's a big hulking guy in a luchador mask who presses a button to um, infuse <laughs> himself with a drug in the back of his head. And it is kind of it's kind of ridiculous. But what he's kind of created as, which is the idea of him essentially being an evil version of Batman because he is he because yeah. he's a genius and he plans carefully and he is the peak of human physical perfection albeit enhanced by the kind of the, the venom drug and, and experimentation on him and stuff um, he is also I'm sure that there is a deliberate influence um, in his design not when he's got the mask on but when he's not wearing his mask and his haircut he looks like Doc Savage. Yeah. Um, the you know the the old pulp hero Doc yeah. Savage, who Doc Savage is a massive influence on Batman. Um, so it's you know it's hard not to see that again that you know that idea of here is somebody who has made themselves the peak of physical human perfection and an absolute tactical genius. So I like that idea of Batman actually being defeated by an evil version of himself it's just not somebody who dresses up in a cape and cowl and calls himself you know owl man or or something to to use one of the other examples of an evil batman that's, that's been done in dc comics um and the way that bane defeats batman i mean i've always thought it's kind of cheating but it's also the clever way to beat batman because he doesn't just go and fight him like when bane actually beats the shit out of batman 
he's he's defeating a Batman who is pretty much already beaten, who is who has reached yeah. like the peak of physical exertion and who has just utterly destroyed and weak. Now, in one because what essentially what what Bane does is he break Batman is already quite and I think they've been layering this and building it up in the stories beforehand. Anyway, Batman is already kind of knackered to start. Yeah, he's with. suffering. He's they just describe it as an illness, but essentially mm. he's suffering from exhaustion. And yeah. but he's also. John Paul Valley's come into the family, but for, and they don't really flesh this out enough for reasons that only serve the narrative that they they want to continue with. <laughs> yeah. He suddenly decides he's going to start pushing Robin away, so he starts mm. trying to do things on his own a bit more, despite yeah. being well on the path to sort of full physical exhaustion. But to go back to what you were saying about Bane, one of the things I really really like about Bane is that. They did create this this great big, uh, you know, this great big lunk who could take Batman on physically, but that that he he's basically is a genius level strategist. So this plan to break Batman down and blow up Arkham Asylum and release all that everybody he's put in there, it it's it's actually it's it's quite clever. And now the thing is, every time somebody's done Batman since in various versions of media they always ignore that aspect until the dark knight rises and even that went more with the in the end when it turned out essentially that he was talia's henchman spoilers again for a movie that's what (laughs) however many years old (laughs) even then it it sort of it wouldn't go all the way and it it annoys me that because i think if people go back to the core of what the character is it's a far more interesting take at this point, which is the very first time we see Bane, than at any other point that has followed, to be perfectly honest with you. What what I like about the plan is that it, it actually uses Bruce's nature against him because pretty much any other character, this idea of we're going to release all of your villains and you're going to have to fight them all one by one, they would probably they would stop or they would get help, or, you know, there's there's lots of ways around it. With Batman, Batman is obsessive, and that is, you know, obsession is the key to the character of Batman. That that is what drives him more than anything else, is this obsession. So Bane knows that Batman will not stop, and Batman will not reach a point where he will allow himself to stop. And also, he's in a frame of mind at the point of this story where he also won't accept help from other people. Um, so, as I say, on the one hand, I remember reading this as a kid and just thinking, oh, Bane's rubbish, you know, surely he should be able to beat Batman just by fighting him. If he can't beat him in a fair fight, then he's he's not a great villain. But actually, no, as a plan, it's a plan that makes sense for Batman. It's a plan that wouldn't necessarily make sense for Superman. Yeah, um, he's, he's, it makes a point of sort of saying that Bane is essentially trying to destroy the concept as well as the man, and he only mm-hmm. takes the man on when he sort of feels he's at a point that Batman's at his at basically at his lowest ebb. Um, and I, I think to go, we're sort of leaping around all over the place, but basically it's worth just describing that the plan is basically they nick some ballistic rockets blow a hole in the side of Arkham Asylum and basically aid the release of everybody. So the the first part of Nightfall, the greater part of it is Batman hunting down some of the villains that have escaped and it gives the it gives the writers a great sandbox to play in so that you get 
in the obvious ones are there but you also get some great moments like the the ventriloquist with Socko and uh, amygdala in the toy shop <laughs> and you get that the issue where Zaz is at the girls' school, I think is That's a... That's a great issue. Great issue, yeah. I don't think Zaz has ever been written better than that, to be perfectly honest with you. So you get you get lots of... in Within this sort of lead-up, you get lots of sort of self-contained stories. And every... You keep flashing back to either Bane stood on a rooftop or one of his henchmen stood on a rooftop or Bird <laughs> sending out his, uh, his eagle... And it always ends with basically Batman just at a lower and lower and lower and lower ebb. And around him, Tim's sort of having to do his his own thing. And he's sort of half preparing Jean-Paul Valley, but also half wanting to help Bruce and being annoyed he's being pushed away. So there's lots of things just building up, this perpetual build-up. And it, it's quite interesting the way it's structured because I don't think comics is is, you know ever decreasing circles as they say but i don't think anybody's tried to do something like this on quite this scale since have they not that i can think of anyway in terms of just releasing the whole gauntlet of villains and going i mean yeah i mean i think people often say about hush which is the the jeff Loeb and jim lee batman story from the mid 2000s that sort of redefined mm. the character a bit um, and was massively selling um, was that it was a, a bit of a greatest hit as in oh, let's do a 12 issue storyline where, where we meet all of the villains but it's not really the same as this I think I think I think this is done in a in a slightly different way yeah uh, there's and like a... you say yeah it, it's that kind of one after the other thing I mean there, there's no break because no. You know, the story is just all about how how relentless this is and they and they are kind of different types of story as well as you say you know there's 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 an issue where where Zaz the serial killer is has, has got a hostage situation in a, in a girl's school um there's there's a mad hatter issue which is one of the earliest issues which is just a bit a bit silly and ridiculous <laughs> yeah. uh, and in, in, in which bane shows that he's a terrifying threat by killing a crap villain called film freak yeah i mean um, he literally beats him to death doesn't he <laughs> yeah and you have you have this running story this kind of in the background running storyline with um the joker and the scarecrow that sort of they're they're sort of getting on with their plan in the background, and then that sort of comes to a head. Um, they they team up and kidnap the mayor, and it's sort of rescuing the mayor from a from a flooding subway tunnel is what pretty much it, it's kind of the last the last straw and the mm-hmm. last thing that sort of tips Batman over the edge to being utterly wrecked before Bane. Um, takes yeah, him on. and it, it, there's there's I think you mentioned Hush there. I think the thing about this is there's far less hand holding than in Hush. This is you know it's that firefly pops up and there's there's loads of it it feels to me in places that the writers have sort of sat down and thought well if we're going to do this i'm going to get the chance to write an issue on that person i've always wanted to write an issue for and some of the some of the other major villains i would say they're almost the weaker part so you've got the joker scarecrow which ultimately comes to nothing because they just have a big fallout basically so it's 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 the but what it leads up to that I really like and every time I read it I still really enjoy it is the the final confrontation basically and before that Batman essentially running the gauntlet of uh, Bane's three henchmen Bird Trog and Zombie. <laughs> um, who are, in case you hadn't got it, are named after uh, three bands from the sixties. Yeah, so that so Bird is spelt B Y R D. Um, 
but they he he essentially in a very literal sense runs a gauntlet through the three of them eventually gets back to the back cave and Bane is is there at Wayne Manor basically he comes up the stairs opens the clock and Bane is there and it's it's a great sort of the the fight itself uh, comic book fights are not not to everybody's taste but the fight itself is actually one of the better fights in terms of how it's sequenced and how it's drawn and you really do get the sense of how broken batman is at this point and you really do get the sense that he's being you know bane is kicking the living shit out of him but he was broken weeks ago this is just the final this is just the final act essentially yeah i mean i i, I think i do think generally and it, it does always kind of come up when i read this that i think i do think the point the stuff up to the point at which Batman is defeated by Bane, I do think, is the the least interesting stuff. Um, I, I I think there you know there is a, a good tour around the villains, but I think from from the point of view of Batman and to an extent the Robin stuff as well, it's a little one note in that they they're just in this constant state of Batman is getting tired and tired and Robin is getting more and more worried about him, and it's just kind of building up to this. Yeah, and I think I I do think it's it's when you get the status quo change that that I think this story becomes the most interesting because yeah. that's as I say that's when it becomes about what happens when you take Batman out of the equation. Yeah, um, and this is where as I say you know maybe it's an interesting point to talk about the the difference with Death and Return of Superman, but um, it's not that I don't think that this story succeeds in showing you how bad. The replacement Batman is uh, because I think it does, and I say you know I, I think a lot of the stuff with with Jean Paul as Batman when he takes over is is really interesting, and his slide into just being a bad version of Batman um, is really good. But where with Death and Return of Superman, you have this this great storyline with these four terrific in different ways characters all trying to be the Superman. And then the real Superman returns, and you're like, "Wow, this is the real Superman. This is the hero that we always wanted." Um, I feel like with with Nightfall and Nightquest and Night's End, and jumping ahead a little bit, that I don't quite get that same feeling when Batman comes back that, no, I, that I do I, with Return of Superman. I think I th- it's I think that's partly to do with the ending because it doesn't. When Batman puts the suit back on, by his own admission, he's not sure. He's not completely yeah. confident. And, and in not fact, sure he doesn't actually. Again, we we are kind of jumping ahead, but yeah. he doesn't actually go back to being Batman permanently at that point. There's no. another storyline with Dick Grayson taking over yeah. as Batman for a little while. That ends with another we'll, costume uh, change. But yeah. yeah, we'll get to that. So basically, that we get to the point where Bane breaks Batman's back. And it, it's it's a huge. I I don't think you can underestimate that moment in Batman history because I think that now we're twenty five years on and that is a real cornerstone of the Batman mythos now. And mm. at some point, the Dark Knight Rises did went down that route and obviously breaks his back and all that sort of thing. That, that some... scene is great in Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Actually, the way it's the way they do the backbreaking actually is it's very different. Well, it's it's different and similar to the comics version at the same time, and I think it plays it really well. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. But I think the 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 panel, the actual panel where mm. where 
Bane breaks his back. It's a splash page. And it's one of those panels that everybody has seen, whether knowingly or not, everybody who has even sort of a passing interest at this point has seen that panel. And then there's a, there's there's an interesting thing with that actually I think and and, and I wanted at some point to to talk about the art on on this storyline as a whole um, and I actually again in general I think it's a way that this storyline as a whole doesn't hold up quite as well as as Death and Return of Superman because I talked on that episode about how I think at the point at which Death and Return of Superman was happening the quality uh, to an extent of the writing but certainly of the art. I think was pretty much the best the main Superman books have ever had. Like the the, the rotating yeah. regular set of artists on the Superman books at that time were all brilliant. On Nightfall, I don't feel the same way. I think what you, at the start of Nightfall, the early issues of Batman, and it, at the time the main Batman artist was Jim Aparo, and I'll talk about Jim Aparo in a minute because that's this is why I brought this up because of you talking about that panel. Mm. Um, and Detective Comics was Graham Nolan. Um, but there was Norm Brayfogle had been working on the Batman books generally for a while. He'd done a great run on Detective Comics and on Batman with with Alan Grant and John Wagner. He draws like the first four issues or so of the storyline um, across multiple issues of Batman and Detective Comics. His stuff is amazing. I think Norm Brayfogle is a is a fantastic artist, and his work on Batman is so stylish and and his storytelling is brilliant and it's a shame that he's on those first few issues and then isn't on the rest of the arc for the rest of for the rest of nightfall up to a point you have jim aparo and graham nolan in rotation graham nolan stays on all the way through night quest as well um but one of the interesting things about nightfall is that it marks the end of jim aparo on batman and jim aparo like had been drawing Batman comics, I think, since the 70s. Mm. Like, certainly throughout the 80s. He's the artist on uh, Death in the Family. Um, you know, he sort of... His style of Batman um, was kind of... It was him taking the, the Neil Adams reinterpretation of Batman, and he kind of defined that even further. Um, and as I say, you know, he, he essentially is the quintessential Batman artist, like, throughout the 80s and the early 90s. He does that panel of Bane breaking Batman's back, which is a fantastic page. I'm actually not... This is like heresy. Jim Aparo is not my favourite Batman artist. There's actually something about his style that I don't always like, and there's always I've found, always found something a little bit off about his version of, of Batman. But what I find interesting is that he is this kind of quite, maybe kind of slightly old-fashioned artist... And the point at which he essentially leaves the Batman books after this incredibly long period of time is halfway through Batman issue 500 when Jean-Paul Valley has taken over as Batman. Jean-Paul Valley redesigns his costume, which again we'll come to. And halfway through that issue, uh, Mike Manley takes over as the artist on Batman. And Jim Aparo never draws the Azrael Batman costume. He he, draw, he draws mm. Jean-Paul Valley as Batman with with these kind of uh, spiky gauntlets that he initially designs, but he never draws that full costume. And I do find it really interesting that there's this kind of changing of the guard and this handover and this kind of moving Batman into the modern era. And I'm pretty sure Aparo must have done some more Batman work on and off since then, but this is the end of him as a regular artist. And I, I do find that handover point really interesting even though I don't always like his style compared to, to Brayfogle or there's an artist called uh, Brett Blevins who draws Shadow of the Bat with Alan yeah. Grant and I think he is wonderful as well I think he's such a good artist yeah. and the, the Shadow of the Bat stuff is it, there's a lovely scarecrow story in the second half of Nightfall when Jean-Paul is Batman 
that again I'd like to talk about in a bit more detail. In fact, no, I won't talk about it in detail because I recommended it to Joe on a previous podcast. So if you want to hear about it, hear me talking about it, then it must have been after Batman Begins because it was a Scarecrow story. So um, yeah, but yeah. I, so I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about Aparo, but as I say, I know that that for Batman fans generally, he's like pretty much the definitive artist. But yeah, I find I, something <laughs> a little staid about his work. I'm, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I'm very much in line with you. I. With his artwork, he's very, very good at um, when you first look at the panel, it looks like there's a lot of detail in there. When you actually study the panel a bit, you realise there's hardly any <laughs> at all. It's a strange it's a strange style and it's a very... I, I It sounds derogatory when I say this, I, I and I, I don't mean it to, but it's a very 70s style of drawing mm. and this is in 1993. Yeah. So the, that's the it, thing. It does kind of feel like the right time to move yeah. on from that style. As as important as he is to Batman comics, um, you know. And as I say, a, a lot of Nightfall is about rejecting the nineties. But equally, there is there is this sense and this acknowledgement that that you do have to move on a bit, and you do have to move on a bit in kind of storytelling. And yeah. this is why, as I say, you know, when when you have issues by him and and Graham Nolan, I quite like Graham Nolan. He's a very clean artist. Graham Nolan feels like a Jim Aparo type artist, but with 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 the kind of style a little bit more updated, but still with that kind of cleanness. But what Brayfogle and Blevins have is is a much more heavily stylized and just, just there's so much more character in their kind of facial expressions. Mm. Um, Blevins does this scarecrow story and he draws the scarecrow so thin and spindly. Um, and you know, similarly, like like Brayfogle does that that Zaz issue that we talked about. Yeah. And he does this thing with Zaz's eyes, and it's like it's not realistic. It's like yeah. it looks like he's wearing a mask because he's got these big black kind of pointy sticking out. But he also shapes around it, his eyes. He creates it's... he creates a movement round Zaz where he becomes mm. almost like animalistic. Almost it, it, the the way he's posed, he suddenly becomes this sort of really gymnastic, uh, really and quite physically imposing villain, as well as this this psycho. I think the thing about Graham Nolan's work is that I I, I like it, but it always feels like he's drawing. Jim Aparo's <laughs> Batman and Gotham, yeah. and Batman always works better with an artist who comes in and goes. Well, this is my Gotham. This is my interpretation. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, the the artwork throughout. There's a, for instance, there's a really bizarre thing that happens in terms of sequencing. In that, in the next issue, Batman's <laughs> Batman's back is broken. Bane chucks him off the top of a building. Uh, Tim and John Paul Valley manage to get his body via via pretending to be an ambulance from that's a Mercy. nice little moment that actually. yeah yeah <laughs> they get his body get him back and there's some real uh, there's there's a, a, a really it's quite an emotional issue and it does it does capture it does capture some nice moments in there but then they go into this god-awful flashback a two-faced story um, yeah, which, which is, is drawn... from issues of, of showcase. Uh, yeah, which yeah. is uh, drawn by um, Cla- uh, is it Klaus Janssen? Klaus Janssen, who's who is work... generally better known as an inker. Yeah, and whose work to uh, to be perfectly honest, I've never really got on with. I've mm. I've never really liked it. He did um, he did a, a Batman and Rachel Gould story, um, which I just it was 
borderline unreadable. I, I always find it interesting reading stuff where he's done the art himself, as I say, because he's so notable as an inker. And I, I really like him as an inker on certain things. Like, he obviously, he's most known for inking Frank Miller's stuff on Dark Knight Returns. But he also d- did quite a bit of inking on Spider-Man in the 90s. I think he inked um, Sal Buscema's stuff. And he later did some stuff with John Romita Jr. as well. And as as an inker, what he does is he overlays a very scratchy style very onto, scratchy. onto kind of on when you have the distinctive kind of facial and figure mm. work of an artist like Miller or Remitta. But when he's penciling, he doesn't have a distinctive facial style at all himself. So it's kind of like it's like he's inking and there's nothing underneath. And it, yeah. yeah, it, it, and and yeah, and and his storytelling isn't as good as some of the people who is. I do, you know, I don't want to kind of do him down too much because I do really like him as, as an inker. But when he's penciling, it looks like weak Bill Sienkiewicz style yeah. Yeah. art. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly it. So the, you have you have this build up, and then you have the the Bane breaking his back, and then you have this quite emotional issue, and then. You, there's this in all the all the trades, all the collected editions. It goes to this uh, this two faced flashback story, which is is terrible. Mm. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, and it actually ends with uh, with Bruce waking up, which should be a massive moment, but it's sort of completely undercut by the fact you've just had to go through. I can't yeah. remember if it's <laughs> if it's three or four issues of of what is a pretty weak story with pretty weak up but then that is also the point though where i think you're right that's where we start getting into the really interesting stuff well this this is when it gets into they realize there's a void in gotham somebody has to put on the suit and john paul valley basically yeah. puts on the suit and this is where that thing you said about the status quo it happens when you read it back it happens remarkably quickly so there's yeah. there's there's your archetypal comic book slide into darkness here but even though it happens quickly the pacing is just enough so that you never feel any part of the process is particularly skipped and you get a reoccurrence of the programming that that Jean-Paul Valley went through starting to cloud his mind and some of his thinking and making a reappearance and you get some really great stuff, actually. Um, Bruce is still involved at this point, and he's told him not to go after Bane. He mm. must, and we all know how that's going to end. <laughs> and it's actually better when Bruce goes through this little the, the the story, the search. When he's actually off the board altogether, that's actually the very best chunk of it for me. Mm. There's a there is an interesting skip actually with with John Paul, and I, it it always makes me feel like. Like, are there some issues missing or something? Because you have so Batman's back gets broken in Batman issue four nine seven. You have Detective six six four, which is the kind of the aftermath of that essentially. And at that point, John Paul Valley is still Azrael or the kind of the knockoff Azrael costume that he yeah. has. Um, Bruce wakes up, and then in Batman four nine eight, Bruce decides that Jean Paul should take over as Batman. So Jean Paul gets handed the cape and cowl, and he responds to a bat signal. Um, and goes to police headquarters and he sort of he says a quite menacing line when he's kind of trying to put on the Batman voice and that's it and then you go into and they were kind of they were published sort of around the same time so I'm not sure which one directly follows but you either go into a three part Shadow of the Bat storyline 
which is which as I say is is a great standalone story and there's lots of really interesting stuff in it about Jean-Paul trying to come to terms with being Batman and sort of being a little bit aggressive and being a little bit unsure of himself and as I say it's got fantastic art I I really like that that storyline but at the very start of the storyline the first time you see Jean-Paul or Paul as Tim always calls him Mm. he's he's at Wayne Manor he's standing out on the balcony in the Batman costume with his mask off and Tim kind of Tim Drake Robin kind of comes up and says oh you know you're taking a bit of a risk Like, like Bruce's rule was always you don't wear the, the costumes above ground and John Paul is like well you know I, that was his rules um, he, he got beaten by Bane he, maybe his rules didn't always work I'm now Batman and he's got this kind of harshness about him and it's like, it's like he's already decided how he does things and you're like well okay where did that happen because the last time <laughs> we saw him he'd only just taken over but if you go over to the next issue of Detective Comics it opens with Tim narrating and like it opens in in media res with him with them sort of fighting some hoodlums, and John Paul has gone completely psycho and is beating the shit out of these street punks, hmm. and it's like you never see his first attempt at going out and being Batman. You only see him having already started to be Batman and already going off the rails. Yeah, well, he's and deciding he's got... straight away to go after Bane as well. But I, I think the way I've always read that is he's got the massive chip on the shoulder because he put. Before all this starts, just to complicate matters slightly further, he did put the bat he, he did put the bat suit on at one point to try and but he he fooled nobody. It was when Bruce That's was right. particularly he, sick. Bruce and, Bruce sends him and yeah and, and, and like Bane doesn't Bane, Bane just see him straight, and go, You're yeah, not Batman and Bane just, walks yeah. straight by him, just completely ignores him. So I've always read it as when he puts the suit on for a second time, he he puts it on immediately with the chip on his shoulder. Mm. So that that straight away he's on. It's not even the thing is it's not even a mission to prove to prove himself to anyone. It's a mission to become what he feels he should become, and that is is influenced by the programming he's received. And we see that as he as he sort of gets he gets to the point where. He shuts Tim out, and he is getting really, really vicious. There are these little moments of light where he manages to bring himself back just before mm. he goes too far. And I really like the fact that we don't get to the point where he puts the suit on and we think he's completely gone. We no. we always there's always this chink of light. There's always this. Well, he could be all right. <laughs> It could be. It could work out in the end because I think it would have been such a cop out just to go evil Batman right from the off, mm. and they don't do that. And there is there's some there's some great issues in there. There's some, and I I like I like the way that um, there's a, the, the the two different artists who are drawing him at this point. There's Nolan and somebody else I think, who I can't remember who else it is, but they both manage to make him look different to Bruce in the bat suit. So even though all that you can physically see of him is his essentially his mouth and chin, they still manage to change his physicality so that you know this is not Bruce in the suit. Yeah, it's it it is still a paro at, uh, on Batman at that point. I I think I think what you're talking about, I think Nolan is better at it. Yeah, yeah. He, it's weird. He does look slightly off. It's yeah. it's interesting. I think I think with a paro, he kind of he still looks like Batman up until the point where. Um, 
in in Batman four nine nine, he designs himself some some gauntlets that look like Azrael type gauntlets. Yeah, and at that point, you know he's you know he's you know he's not Batman, he's not um, Bruce Wayne anymore. Yeah, uh, well, he... no, do you know what he does? He, looking at it, he draws him a little. He draws the face quite harsher, which I think helps, and he draws him kind of a bit taller and thinner, mm. I think, as well. So, they, yeah, they, there it, is still that. That's those. Difference. The other thing they do is they sort of avoid. I think in in fight scenes and in rooftop scenes, they avoid a lot of what I would call the sort of classic Batman poses. So mm. just the fact that he's posed slightly different creates enough of a feeling as you're reading it, so that you know this isn't Bruce Wayne, and yeah. that is something that I think. Frank quietly was the absolute master on oh, on Batman wow. and Robin when <laughs> yeah. when you know on Morrison's run where he managed to make Dick look physically completely different in the yeah. batsuit, move in a different way. It's and it's a very difficult thing to pull off. But I want to talk about the gauntlets for a minute because <laughs> the first time I read this, we came to that point and what he designs himself is. It's essentially a massive pair of mechanicized, mechanicized, I can't even say that word now, but gloves that shoot shurikens, bat, bat symbol shaped shurikens, and serve as graph. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Guns. And he does it all via the programming. And Harold at this point has knows he's a wrong one. So Harold is having nothing to do with it. Har- Harold, by the way, is is the little man who lives in the Batcave and, and builds yeah. all of Bruce's. Because at it, some point it, in the 90s, someone realised that someone had to build all of Batman's stuff for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he, he builds himself these gauntlets. And what's great is that it goes from one panel. He says he says something like the the system, which is what they call the programming. When he takes over, he basically designs them via automatic writing. And there's literally one panel where he says, oh, "Well, the system allowed me to uh, design these things. I wonder if they would allow me to build them." And then in the very next panel, he's reaching for a note in a crack in a wall with his gauntlets on, <laughs> and he's done that in a day. It literally yeah. says, "I've got all day to build them." And you just think, well, 
as somebody who is a former mechanic himself, <laughs> I take my hat off to his engineering skills, to say the very least. But that's only the start of it, because yeah. he, with these gloves, he goes to try and take on Bane, and because he, he actually he does what is a pretty clever plan, which is that at this point Bane is on the loose, um, but uh, Zombie Bird and Trog are in prison. Uh, did Bruce defeat them, or does Jean Paul defeat them and put them in prison? I can't remember that actually. No, I think it's Bruce, isn't it? Because yeah, so, when he so runs the gauntlet, he yes, originally right. defeats he, them. He, he defeats. They're the last thing he defeats before Bane beats yeah. him. So they're in prison. So Jean Paul breaks them out of prison so that they think that Bane has done it, and follows them <laughs> to Bane's hideout in a hotel. Uh, which is a nice plan, but he tries to take on Bane and fails. Um, and he decides at that point that what's holding him back is the costume. So he applies the design principles of the gauntlets to designing a full Batman costume. And this is in issue 500 of Batman, which has a lovely... It has a die-cut fold-out cover. So if you just look at it in its normal form, you've got a Joe Quesada piece of artwork, because Joe Quesada designed the... the well, he designed the original Azrael, I think, because he, he drew that series, didn't he? And then he yeah. designed the Azbats costume as well. And the cover folds out to then reveal the the Azrael Batman costume as well. Uh, so halfway through that issue... So Jim Aparo draws half the issue, and uh, then... Uh, Jean-Paul, well what happens is <laughs> Tim is down in the Batcave finds the drawings of the designs and says you've got to be kidding and then it cuts to a full page splash of Jean-Paul flying across the city in his new Batman costume drawn by new artist Mike Manley yeah. and I'm I'm not much of a fan of Manley's art I don't think it's bad, I just think it's it's only ever fine, It's it just never jumps out but that first full page splash of him in the costume is brilliant and ridiculous. Yeah, um, I, the costume. I think the costume itself. There will be people whose nose will crinkle at this, and I suspect one of them is one of your cohorts on this podcast. <laughs> but I still think it's a fantastic piece of character design because. Mm. One of the reasons we're talking about this now is because Jean Paul Valley and this suit are coming back into continuity. Yeah. This suit looks fresh as a daisy. This suit as a piece of design work, you could drop it into a twenty seventeen comic, no problem whatsoever. Without I mean, it changing is, a thing. It's incredibly nineties, but it's nineties in that way that has been making a comeback. Yeah. Now it it's deliberately got a load of silly pouches and I love the way he's got a, a belt of pouches wrapped around his leg. Yeah. Which which is one of the first things he ditches actually, because one of the one of the fun things about this costume as well is that it goes through several iterations. Well again, we'll we'll come on to Night Quest. I'm aware that we've spent we've already spent a long time. But they slightly but, the, um, but the the thing was when they designed the suit, they 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 name checked um, Rob Liefeld because yeah. they were after trying to find a halfway point between the ridiculousness of early 90s anti-heroes yeah. who were these roided up physically impossible bodies with small heads, shoulders the size of a juggernaut and just mus lumps of muscles that have never existed on any human body <laughs> since the dawn of time what I what I like at this point as well, as you're speaking of Liefeld, is that um, at, at this point as well, um, the covers for Batman comics were being done by Kelly Jones, and he sort of tends to over-exaggerate features anyway. <laughs> but there seems to be a deliberate thing of giving him tiny feet. Like, yes. that, that Batman costume yeah. works for drawing really tiny feet at the bottom of this ridiculous hulking form. 
Um, and they seem to be doing that as a bit of a deliberate piss take, I think. There was, there's <laughs> that, I'll never forget the cover where it's Bane and Asbats fighting, and mm. Bane has got about a 12-pack, and <laughs> he's got this cl- like cluster of muscle, muscles under his armpit that yeah. have appeared from nowhere, and it's... <laughs> But it's done in such a way as it, you know, it's it's not the lifehouse stuff was always quite. It, it's never sat right with me. Whereas this seemed more, it seemed to be more. It knew what it was doing. It yeah. knew what it was about, and it was just yeah, you know, this is our opportunity to draw something in this style. So, Azrael Asbats fights Bane, um, but and and he fails, gets the suit. Bane is then loose in the city, and he there's there's two moments in this this final fight between Asbats and Bane that I really like. There is one the advertising board where he puts <laughs> Batman in quotation marks, yeah. which is just <laughs> it's just great. So he, he basically takes over a electric advertising board and changes the wording to Batman in quotation marks now, so that Batman sees it, comes down. But the other thing I really like is just quite how cheesy and how 90s action movies some of the dialogue is so like one of the panels just before they fight um asrael's inner narration is it starts raining and it goes rain rain makes it perfect and it's just so (laughs) it's like really on the nose but in a in a sort of quite celebratory and quite comic book way that i just i just really like and i actually think this fight is is actually again it's a pretty well staged fight i think it's a good it's a good fight i mean you, you said action movie in terms of the dialogue but it's like it's a it's a fight sequence on a speeding train mm. um, that goes out of control and crashes. And yeah, I I think it's a pretty good sequence. I mean, John Paul kind of wins through luck because one because yeah. the train crashes, and two because he manages to knock out Bane's venom supply. So at the point at which the train crashes, Bane has got no way of sort of boosting his strength and and revitalizing himself again. Uh, but no, it's 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 a fun sequence actually, and it's a it's a sequence that you could imagine seeing in a film and it playing out in a quite exciting. Well, way. you um, t- Tim basically saves the passengers on the train by separating the front couple of of um, train carriages. Yeah, and anybody who has seen Spider Man two, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's it is sort of, it is quite reminiscent of that. So, yeah. so it this is an the, elevated train. Yeah, so the second part ends with Bane broken by the new Batman, who also refuses to kill him at the end. Tim is genuinely worried he's going to kill Bane yeah, at the and, very and end. Yeah, that, and that's your sort of, okay, he's becoming Batman now moment. Yeah. Because, you know, he, the way that he's been building and building is, okay, he's probably going to kill someone here, and he decides not to. What I'm not sure about is if you're ever really... You, you talked before about, you know... Um, it was the thing of you put him in the cost. You don't want him to seem too evil because do you actually want, if you're DC, I'm talking about here, do you want people to buy the idea that Jean Paul could actually be the permanent Batman? And I don't, I don't know if you're ever really supposed to believe that he could be, but this is the point at which if you were going to, this is the point that would make yeah. you go, okay, maybe I've got to start accepting him now. Because Tim does, and, and as always, you know, but particularly if you're a teenage nerd reading Batman comics, Tim Drake is your way in, because Tim Drake mm. is the guy you want to be if you're a teenage nerd reading Batman comics. Yeah. So if Tim Drake thinks, oh, okay, maybe he's all right, then you think that as well. Yeah. 
unfortunately, that is pretty much the only moment during the entire storyline yeah, where it... Tim thinks maybe he's all right. Because then we go into Night Quest. Yeah. And th- the thing about Night Quest is this is where I think there's... For, m- for me, Clive, that's a football reference. <laughs> um, this is where I think there's the biggest variance in quality there's yeah, some really there's really some good stuff, stuff that i love in this and yeah some stuff that, there's uh, and yeah. some stuff is just absolutely awful <laughs> really so, awful. Go on. So, so so which do you think are the good and the bad bits because we start so we start off with a storyline which is a, a dixon and nolan storyline um running in uh detective comics which is um this is where john paul discovers the the, the subway train yeah. that harold has built which yeah, essentially, started... essentially it turns out that there's a spur of the subway system that runs into the Batcave and Harold has designed a rocket car that runs on the train tracks and can get yeah. him into Gotham. And just coincidentally, uh, there is a plot involving a heist of a train on the subway yes. uh, involving uh, bringing back an old, I don't know if they were Silver Age or even Golden Age, but a pair of villains called the Trigger Twins <laughs> yeah. who are who Wild are... West themed. I... You see, this this section, I'm an absolute sucker for bringing in somebody like the Trigger Twins, something like yeah. that. I just think it's great. I I enjoyed that. Um, the next um, section, I I enjoy thoroughly as well. Where it takes a turn for me is the minute you get to the story with the Tallyman involved. That for me is just. Yeah, so this is so this is actually this is back in Shad this is in Shadow of the Bat again. And it's like yeah. after Alan Grant um with, with Brett Blevins on art has given us, as I say, what I think is one of the absolute highlights of the entire run during Nightfall, which is the, the Scarecrow story, the God of Fear. Yeah. You get this story called the Tallyman. It's got art by uh somebody called I don't know their first name, Geriano. I should have looked this up beforehand. It's not Vince, good. Vincent Ger- <laughs> Geriano. Yeah. It's it's not good. It's actually not a million miles away in style from the kind of thing that that Blevins does, but it's bad rather than good. Really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it and it, it's yeah, it the story itself is stupid, <laughs> and what frustrates me in it is that the artwork throughout Tallyman is never drawn in any consistent mm. sense. I mean, at one and point... And he's a terrible he, design anyway. Yeah, um, but at one point he's drawn almost like a snake under a, <laughs> under a coat. <laughs> it's really weird. So I, I, I don't like that, and I don't like the the uh, code name Necros. Yeah, so this, so this is then... So then, then we go into issues of Batman, which are um, uh, written by Doug Mensch, drawn by Mike Manley, and this crosses over with Catwoman as well. Um, yeah. Which is Catwoman of the time by by Joe Duffy and Jim Balant, and it's just it's just it's all it's it's all about there's a mercenary, um, and it's a bit of a gang war, and there's a high tech mercenary, who again yeah. is quite a kind of nineties style character. But it's, <laughs> it, I, it's a really uninteresting storyline. I think the the only thing that really comes out of this is. It's the point at which John Paul starts to think my current costume is maybe not enough for the type of people who I'm fighting as well. Yeah. And then when you then you get the Catwoman crossover and there's this interesting thing. Is it interesting? John Paul kind of develops this weird obsession with Catwoman. Like he's because he's sort of there's even a point when Catwoman realizes that he's not the real. 
Batman, and part of the reason is that, like, um, she says that, you know, the, the, the real Batman, like, reeks of pheromones, whereas he's, like, practically sterile. <laughs> and it's this yeah. weird thing where, he, yeah, he is this guy who's kind of grown up in this weird cult and, you know, has had no physical or romantic relationship with anybody ever and then suddenly finds himself oddly drawn to Catwoman, but then decides that, that she's a thief and a criminal and actually that that she's, you know, evil and, um, you know, that, that she's trying to tempt him away from his righteous path. All of his kind of religious conditioning sort of kicks in and it, it gets a bit weird. Yeah, um, but they, they, it's also sort of the last... It's the last point where there's any sort of fight in before he sort of really gives himself over to the persona of Batman completely yeah. because after that he essentially he that after that he doesn't take the suit off um i think there's a couple of times where you see him yeah. without the mask but he never physically takes the suit off and even when he modifies the suit you never see any transition so and that becomes quite a key part towards the end of it but there's there's some good stuff there's the the creatures of clay art which is is good and there's there's there is some good stuff in there but so it, I, I i wanted to ask actually what you thought about the joker storyline that comes up in this so uh, there is a, a short arc in detective comics which is the the dixon and nolan stuff again where the joker decides he wants to make a movie about the death of batman <laughs> But yeah. with the real Batman involved. I, um, yeah, I really like it. I'll be honest with you. And I'll tell you why I really like it. Because it's a little throwback to what I can only describe as giant typewriter Joker. It's a little, <laughs> you know, the oversized yeah. props and the, the slightly outlandishness. Because, again, from this point, really, it really turned... This is where mm. the Joker went from any semblance of anything other than just being a cold-blooded maniac serial killer this is a it's a fun little story i mean don't they end up on a giant piano at one point if memory serves or there's a big film set and there's yeah yeah busby berkeley style walkway and there's a really nice moment actually when the joker's watching john paul as batman like fighting fighting his kind of gang members who he's got to beat him up and realises because of how brutal he is and how he's got like no grace he realises that it's not actually Batman and he gets really annoyed because he's like I thought this yeah. was Batman uh, it's, a... also, it's also got um, Siskel and Ebert in it who get yeah. killed by the Joker <laughs> yeah um, and uh, there's, not there's... named but they are essentially uh, yeah. there's a lovely little <laughs> lovely little Joker moment as well when they start fighting if I remember rightly where the Joker just screams at him, "Get off my set!" Which is just like such a nice little. I I like I like that side. There's lots of individual moments and lots of individual stories, but of course, then it takes a turn because while they didn't go all the way to showing him kill somebody, what he effectively does is leave somebody to die. Yeah. So this is after you've had these sort of. He gets this little kind of tour around various types of of Batman story essentially mm. and he gets like a few kind of one shot stories um then he it's at, it's it's kind of around about the same time as this story is happening is also the point at which there, there's a there's a shadow of the bat one shot where he's he's battling like an acid type character and his suit yeah. gets partly destroyed and that's where he sort of then creates the new sort of 
he has a more of a kind of helmet mask and a and, and a more armory. It's, yeah, it's the point at which um, it becomes far more Azrael. Yeah, than he's, Batman. He, and then then from then on, pretty much in every issue, something happens that causes him to do another tweak to the costume, or you know, to kind of get rid of the cape and replace it with blades, or to put guns on it, and that kind of it just gets more and more ridiculous. But at the same time, this is happening. You've got the storyline running in Batman, where he's chasing down a serial killer called abattoir whose thing is basically that he kills and eats like members of his extended family yeah um and cut a long story short really but abattoir has kidnapped um a family member of his called graham etchison and left him in a torture device batman hunts down abattoir goes and fights him um and they're in are they in like a kind of foundry or something and there's yeah. like a, a vat of molten stuff Abattoir's kind of hanging over it and basically Batman turns and walks away and leaves him. So yeah. Abattoir so he doesn't kill him. He's not literally responsible for him falling, but he doesn't stop him from falling. And also as a result of that, and I find this quite interesting from a storytelling point of view, but as a result of that, they nobody has any way to know where Graham Etchison is, and by the time the police find him, he's dead. Whereas yeah. if they if Batman had brought in Abattoir they might, the police might have questioned him and found out where Graham Etchison was. And the reason I found that interesting is because it's almost like it's not enough for him to have just let a villain die. Like, the fact that he's let a villain die is the reason why Tim and, and to an extent, Bruce are horrified by what he's done because it's like, that's not what Batman does. Batman doesn't let the villain... You know, it's not even so much that he doesn't kill, it's that he doesn't... You know, he, if the Joker was hanging above that vat, Batman would say... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's like the story needs to have that additional element of an innocent died as a result. It's like it's like yeah. they can't truly go over the edge of Jean Paul is the bad guy unless an innocent died as a result of his actions as well. Yeah. It's it's again, it's a story where there's highs and lows sometimes within the space of four or five pages, but what it does do is it then gives you a point where, as a reader, you go, right, well, this is definitely irredeemable, irre- yeah. irredeemable at this point. We are now looking at a villain. And from that moment on, um, because Bruce comes back from his adventures around the world, where I think, if I remember rightly, wearing a pair of safari boots and a gilet, um, <laughs> comes into the cave and confronts Paul. And basically they have a... They have a, a, a fight and Bruce realises he's not up to the job etc but he's got to take him down and that kicks in the next part of it basically but yeah from that moment on every time pretty much you see Asbats he is very much the villain and there's quite a noticeable increase in you see random panels where he's under the influence of the system and he's just you know Robin's watching him from afar as he's on a rooftop you know screaming into the night holding his head and stuff like that so so yeah this is very much right from this moment on he's now become part of the rose gallery Mm. we now need a batman to take him down and that's Um, what we get (laughs) so just before we go on to to night's end actually then so yeah so the 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 gap in things really is is night quest the search which as Mm. i say has has never been collected up until a a new omnibus edition which is apparently going to collect it and it actually largely features bruce wayne in england um Mm. there's 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 some issues with justice league task force that he appears in bizarrely justice league task force at this point was kind of like a sort of a justice league affiliated sort of suicide squad 
but uh, had uh, like Green Arrow and, and Bronze Tiger and stuff in it. Um, then it goes on to three issues of Shadow of the Bat, which, as I say, are, are set in England. It introduces, and they're, they're Alan Grant and Brett, uh, Brett Blevins, introduces um, a character called Hood, who is basically mm. a, a British vigilante. I, I, I like this character for the short amount of time that he's in it, because he's Robin Hood-inspired in that his his thing is that he robs from the rich, but he's not dressed in green because that would basically make him Green Arrow because he's a massively left wing Robin Hood inspired uh, vigilante. So actually, he dresses in red, white, and grey, and he's kind of his, his costume's kind of like sort of crusade inspired. Um, but I just like that he's this really fervently left wing. It's almost <laughs> like if Citizen Smith was a vigilante. Yeah. Um, and I just I, I like that character for the for the short time that he gets, and I, I know and it's like if you're going to do a British vigilante, he's quite a good angle on it. As in, mm. as I say, he's this kind of angry, you know, anarchist punk left wing guy. Um, I've only ever seen him turn up again when he turned up in like Grant Morrison's Batman Incorporated, and he was kind of brought into all the spiral stuff. Um, yeah. But he's he's a character who like you know if if I was a comics writer and then DC said pick an obscure character and do a storyline about them I and do do like an Animal Man type reinvention I I would yeah. do something about Hood. Um, With but, um, it, yeah, it, it's it, the thing about the search is like you've pretty much just summed it up in that there's a great character comes out of it. There's a couple of great panels in it. But it's not a great comic by no, any stretch. No, it, it largely consists of Bruce Wayne pretending to be an English aristocrat <laughs> so that he yeah. can infiltrate um, this this big country manor where the villain lives because the villain is Chandra Consolving, who's Bruce's doctor, who he's fallen in love with. His adoptive, uh, her adoptive brother. They have weird healing superpowers that can. Well, these powers can be used like sort of as a sort of telekinetic thing to either heal or kill people. Yeah, which Chandra um, is also know nothing about until this point in her yeah. life hasn't she She's basically just... chandra has been working as a doctor who has this reputation for being able to miraculously get results healing people and mm. she doesn't realize that she subconsciously has these powers that that have helped but it, it, in case you can't see where this is going this ultimately ends up being the means by which bruce's back recovers um, it also means that in the process chandra's mind uh, gets reduced to being like a five-year-old girl um, yeah. And so Bruce has to kind of put her in a home and, and, and like pay for her care for the rest of her life. And that conveniently ends the storyline where they're in love and she knows that he's that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Um, it's it's just all over the place. It's it's a really it's a messy storyline and it doesn't feel like a Batman storyline. It does work a bit better in the book. Again, in, in the Nightfall mm. novel, I think it's able to be fleshed out a little bit more. Um, but the main thing that comes out of it is um, when they return to Gotham and Bruce is determined to push himself and kind of solve this this uh, this quest, this problem, is the point at which Alfred snaps and Alfred walks out on him. And there's yeah. there's a couple of really nice Alfred scenes, which, again, is probably because they're, they're written by... Um, uh, well, actually, those issues are written by Dennis O'Neill, who, again, mm-hmm. writes him well in the novel. And he's got a really good handle on that character. And so... Like that bit's nice, and actually, it takes a little while before Alfred comes back again, um, and so he gets some nice scenes. But other than that, yeah, it's it, it's just a mess, and it's yeah. it's really just killing time. It's just a way of getting one. It's a way of healing Bruce, and two, it's a way of getting him out of Gotham so that the the stuff with Jean Paul and Abattoir can happen not on Bruce's watch, 
so then Bruce can come back and be horrified and yeah. decide that he needs to take the mantle back, and so that's yeah. when we get Night's End. Yeah. Can I talk a little bit about the Mask of Tengu here? Please do. <laughs> um, I love, I adore this this angle. Basically, Bruce comes back and he realises that physically he's lost all semblance of, essentially, to put it in football parlance, he's not match fit. So <laughs> yeah, his his back is healed, but he's he, yeah, but he feels essentially like he feels his sort of senses have been dulled and he's lost the sort of very peak end of his abilities. Mm. So we see him up on a rooftop in Gotham and he won't jump off. He doesn't feel he's ready. It's not that he's frightened, but it's more that he knows he's not ready to do it yet. So he basically goes off to a little retreat, cabin in the woods. And what we find out is that that basically he's contacted Lady Shiva, um, who is, for the uninitiated, is is basically one of the one of the greatest if not the greatest martial artist in the world who has a fairly potted history with not only batman with various members of the batman family too and she's basically completely amoral <laughs> yes yeah and she he goes to her sort of cap in hand basically needing training and the only way she'll do it is is basically by she goes and kills the uh sensei uh, of a group of people wearing uh, a bat mask, the mask of Tengu, basically. She then gives Bruce the mask, and the sensei's disciples basically come after him, one after one, uh, one after the other, in a series of increasingly uh, sort of bizarre ways, really, and real comic book ways. So they, the first is like a cabin... A, a log cabin in the woods and it's all about Bruce sort of rediscovering his stealth abilities and realising how how his senses have dulled and he, he basically he beats him through luck he essentially essentially manages to dump a pile of logs on him but then you get some increasingly bizarre fights like the one on top of the cars and it turns out it's just a real bonkers comic book story because it turns out they're finding him because Lady Shiva put in a little tracking bug in the mask itself. And then you get to the point where basically Bruce has to, to, to free himself of of this. He basically has to kill one of them and that's that's the only way it will end. Yeah. Um, and you get you get that real classic comic book thing of uh, Dick and Tim are watching as he as he basically is, he essentially delivers the final blow, the final strike, and kills in inverted commas at the end of you know last panel of uh, last panel of one issue. Of course, we then discover that it's a special strike that leaves basically leaves your <laughs> opponent in a state mimicking death <laughs> and eventually wakes up but the the uh it's it's basically lifted and he can go and put the bat suit back on and and he does jump off that rooftop but there's some wonderful like real as i said i keep using the phrase but real comic book moments in that in that story and i just love that part of it and i love what they do with bruce there because Bruce Wayne is not always the most lovable character by any stretch, but in this, the the writers, as they take their turn, they do sell the vulnerability, and they do sell their... 
the the you know just because his back is back together his psyche is still not there yet and it does a really good job of putting those pieces back together and it's it's great it's it's part of this story that every time i read it just gives me a deep deep joy is it maybe it's just that i don't have a huge amount of frames of reference for this type of story um in in sort of like american um culture but is there any kind of it feels to me like there's a sort of deliberate shinobi thing going yeah. on here in terms of like defeating bosses that keep coming after him it's yeah, felt I to mean, me like a riff on, on essentially the shinobi games essentially it's it's a riff on martial arts movies it's a, yeah. it's a riff on the the really old drunken master type rubies which were always invariably based around somebody sensei dying early on and them having to be avenged and their abilities surpassed basically and even the i would argue that even the suit that bruce is in because he has the the mask of tengu on but it's essentially a somewhere between part batsu and part ninja costume that he's he's wearing besides that and it's just i i think one of the reasons i love it is because it's something quite quite different and it brings in a couple of different it shows a different side of bruce as as i said it sells that vulnerability and it the way they do it the the villains are so the the disciples as they come after him are just ridiculous you know, and one of them is essentially a a, a Bane clone. Is the <laughs> yeah. only way I can, you know, and it forces forces Bruce to sort of confront some things on that level. And it, it's just for me, like I say, it's again, it's one of those things that it. I think with any of these events, you know, like Death and Return or this, or you know, I'm just rereading at the moment the Clone Saga, the Spider-Man Clone Saga. There's always these moments that feel even though they're in something that's, that's an item of mass media, somehow manage to feel deeply personal to you because you just derive an mm. enormous amount of joy from particular things. And that aspect of it for me, I just love it. But then you've got rumbling on in the background. Obviously, you've got a Jean-Paul who at this point is essentially he's he's more Azrael than Batman, I would argue at this point, because mm. he's talking about avenging everything's avenging and vengeance and you know for they'll fill my flame and all this sort of thing so it's it's then building up to the uh, effectively the last part the last act and yeah. it, it, this is where we start we basically the bat family comes back together batman puts the bat suit back on and right we're on. How are we going to take Jean-Paul Valley down? And, and, the, and then the, the moment at which they first confront is actually in an issue of Catwoman because we're, yes. we're brought into a Catwoman crossover about Catwoman trying to retrieve some technology, um, which is sort of it's the it's the classic Catwoman thing of the time of she is being a thief but for noble purposes because it's technology that will help a small child walk again. A neural um, enabler, isn't it? If memory serves. Cyber- cybernetic like enabler. I think yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, um, and I. Actually, I do think using Catwoman at this point is quite nice because at this point, both characters now have a bit of a history with her and she's a good sort of judge of... There's basically a moment when there's some criminals trapped in a helicopter on top of a bridge that's about to explode um, and Batman basically... She's like, oh, you know, 
just just let them blow up and batman's like no come on we have to get them out and she's like oh okay it is you then he's back back kind of thing i mean we as the reader know that it's bruce but it's nice to have somebody in the world going that and i think you you, i'm sure you get a similar moment with with jim gordon later on at some point as well yeah Um, yeah. and this storyline also and actually also the one of it is again because they were using every title they had available to them um that all takes place in an issue of shadow of the bat which again has brett blevin's artwork and like brett blevin's drawing all of azrael batman and proper batman and catwoman and nightwing and robin all in one issue on top in in a battle that takes place on top of a bridge where like every panel is just from a weird angle it's yeah. a it's a great storytelling issue of comics um but it does then feature a moment which i think is possibly the most controversial moment in the entirety of this run and it's been like when did this come out 93 94 so it's been over 20 years and i still have not seen an adequate explanation for what happens here so what happens is at the top of this bridge a uh, helicopter is, is has crashed and is spewing out fuel and then it catches a light uh it actually well i know it's before the helicopter explodes but actually there's fuel and jean paul valley actually f- shoots a flamethrower at batman he himself catches on fire and falls in the river um then all the stuff happens with the helicopter and Catwoman, and they save the um, they save the bad guys. Bruce goes to the Batmobile to chase down Asbats. The Batmobile explodes because Asbats has booby trapped it, and Asbats dramatically appears to tell Dick and and Tim that this is you know Bruce's just reward for for crossing him. And at this point, his costume has changed from blue to red. <laughs> Comics. And now I get from a stylistic point of view why it's done, because in the last couple of issues it means that you've got Batman in his classic grey and blue fighting a villain in the Azrael coloured red and gold. Also, the costume, which I like anyway, even though it's silly, looks even better in red than it does in blue. Mm. But there is no good reason why catching on fire and falling in the river would turn a blue metal costume into a red (laughs) metal costume. And I actually asked on Twitter earlier today, if before we recorded this, if anybody had an explanation for this um, that they would like me to read out. And the only response that I got was uh, Mark Clapham said that it was a characteristic of the dark metal in uh, <laughs> Azrael's costume that when it caught fire, when it got hot, it went red. Uh, so a, ni- a nice little topical DC Comics reference there. Yeah. But... <laughs> I, the, the thing is, it's there to do one thing, and that's basically the... You go all the way back to 1991 when you first see Azrael. Azrael's suit is red and gold, so it's it's only there to basically go back to that moment and say, right, we have a Batman now. This and is the point at fu- which he stops being Batman. Yeah, yeah. he's that. We have a Batman. He is now fighting Azrael. So, but yeah, it's it's never made sense. It's never the the other thing we should mention in that issue. If there's that bizarre fight where Nightwing is stalling Asbats, and they end up on a paddle boat, and they end up fighting their way through a poker game, which features yeah. all of the writers' room playing poker. So yeah. all of the various writers that have worked on it, which is just comes out it comes in the middle of a fight scene and just completely takes you out for about three panels yeah um but yeah so then they they basically inevitably they head back to wayne manor which which john paul now sees as 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 his own straight down into the Batcave, and they fight their way first through wayne manor 
and uh, you get the moment where Asbats basically rips the 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 painting of Thomas and Martha Wayne up to really emphasise how far yeah. he's gone. <laughs> but what I it's, quite... like it's bad enough that he let the bad guy die, but the fact that he disrespects yeah. Wayne's like that—that that is the moment he's truly gone. <laughs> yeah, but they. Um, what I quite like here is is Batman's. Batman's angle here is not to go piling into him. He mm. just keeps saying to him, he, "Take he actually, off the suit. Yeah. Take off the suit." He he actually feels responsible at this point, and he yeah. actually there, there's a panel where he says, um, "You know, uh, I could take him down hard, but what would that do to his mind?" And yeah. he's like, he doesn't actually want to destroy him at this point because he recognizes not only was his mistake to put him in charge of Gotham for, for what that's done to the people of Gotham, his mistake is also what he has done to Jean Paul, this guy who was un- in his care, what he has done to him by turning him into Batman. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a there's a really nice sequence where basically Bruce realizes that the, the you know what he's got to do is get him to take the costume off and specifically to take the mask off because you know the. the John Paul's identity has become such a thing that whatever he's wearing is what he believes he is. Um, and it's a great sequence. And actually, it's a really nicely drawn sequence because actually this last issue is drawn by um, Barry Kitson, who I'm not I'm not always a fan of his art either. Like, I, I think he's done some good stuff, but I, he was on Superman, Adventure of Superman, for a little while. And I thought his art, his work was a little, again, a little flat and a little old-fashioned compared to like he 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 strikes me as someone who's kind of in the lineage of Alan Davis and like it's yeah. a bit of an old-fashioned style that I'm not so keen on. But he draws the uh, Asbats costume brilliantly. He draws the gauntlet fingers as really kind of spiky and and sinister. And then there's this great sequence where basically Bruce goes into a narrow cave. And John Paul is following him and basically can't get through any further. And there's a panel where Bruce is wearing night vision goggles and it shows it from his perspective. And John Paul is reaching through to try and grab him. And it really, weirdly, it reminds me of a... No one is going to get this reference, I don't think. But there was a mid-90s CD-ROM game called Creature Shock. And it was one of the first PC games that had like fully 3D rendered graphics. But the gameplay was terrible because it was basically like an on-rails shooter. And like just these these monsters would pop up and like leap out at you. And you, you couldn't control your movement. You could only control shooting them. And it just, it just, the first person perspective just makes me think of that game. And it's, it's a really creepy panel. And the, the page before that is like this side on view of him crawling through the tunnel and it getting narrow and narrow and he mm. can't fit. So what he does is he takes the costume off, but he leaves the helmet on. But Bruce knows that above them, and so they've both got their night vision lenses on. And Bruce knows that above them is, is the board blocking up the, the, the hole that he fell through when he was a kid. You all know the famous hole that Bruce Wayne yeah. fell through into the Batcave. So he pulls off the board, it's daylight, light streams in, um, Jean-Paul is blinded. So the only thing he can do to see is take the mask off. And then that's the point at which he just collapses yeah. and is like, he, I'm he broken. Knows. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's... It's a good ending. It's a good, solid ending. It would have been, to be, to be frank, it would have been far less satisfactory to just see Bruce beat the snot out of him for page <laughs> yeah. after page. It, it's, it works, and it's. This is the culmination of two, depending how you depending depending how you want to argue it. At least two years of story. I would argue three, some would even argue four. <laughs> and 
when you think of sort of events as they are now where people sort of describe 12 issues as quite a gruelling thing to get through this was uh, all encompassing and you had main plot points of the story leaping from book to book so you would get published in the back you would basically get a, a road map so you, you could you could work your way through mm. <laughs> and 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 keep track of it and if you think about if you think about that now in the current in the current market that's absolutely bonkers isn't it yeah <laughs> it's absolutely bonkers but it's just it ends at that point and then it goes on there's a couple of stories that come after so there's there's prodigal which is basically bruce doesn't want to reclaim the mantle at that point he wants to go away take stock of where his life is and decide what where he wants to go from there and complete his recovery so dick puts on the suit for a while and he works with tim and they both work through a few issues but so that yeah it, and that that art was originally like that well it was a separate art called prodigal and it was originally collected as such nowadays it tends to get included in in the nightfall yeah, collection so that they've I, got something to bulk out night's end but the moment the moment Bruce walks across the lawn in the sunlight, having just removed that panel, for me yeah. is the moment that nightfall ends. Yeah. The the yeah, stuff that comes the stuff that comes after, don't get me wrong, there is there's some great stories that come after. But if you're gonna read Nightfall, that's the moment where you go, Right, okay, that's that that's yeah. that sequence over. Well it is, it's a you know, it's a it, it's an end to the storyline. And the, the point is as well, you don't need to know what happens after that like as, as far as you're concerned if you're reading that storyline that storyline ends with bruce Batman's as batman back. yeah um, the fact back. that that what immediately happens afterwards is that dick takes over for a few months is, is completely irrelevant to the thematic and emotional closure yeah. of that storyline the thing is i think what makes it quite hard have it i've, I've reread it last year and what makes it quite hard to reread is at some point we're gonna. At some point, I hope we get the chance to do one of these on on Morrison's run on Batman. We and, could do. It might be a long one, but we could do. <laughs> and when you read Dick as Batman in that, mm. it is so good. And, and Prodigal is, doesn't achieve and that. Prodigal in the same way is at basically all. Prodigal is whiny Dick. It's whiny Dick saying, I don't really want to be wearing this. I don't feel comfortable wearing the bat suit. I don't know if I want to do it one day. I've got a lot of unresolved issues. I mean, they go through that. that there's an arc where he's basically is one long unresolved daddy issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you've, when you've read Morrison's take on, on Dick as Batman, and it, it is it is breathtakingly good. It is so good. It's I mean, we won't go into it now because I could talk far too long on it. It makes what comes after pretty irrelevant, pretty irrelevant, to be honest with you. So I think, as I said, if you were going to embark on a mission to read this, stop at the moment Bruce walks across the front lawn back to Wayne yeah. Manor. <laughs> and yeah, so, so that is Nightfall. So like I say, I mean, I... I, I think for the most part, I'd say that there are moments that I love, and and I I, I think there are ideas that are fantastic. Uh, you know, so I say I I love I love the issues whenever it's Alan Grant and Brett Blevins particularly. Mm. I love the Azrael costume. I like the idea of as they do with Superman. Here's the hero that you think you want, but 
he's not the hero that actually that we need. He he's not the hero that Gotham needs, mm. <laughs> as they might say, mm-hmm. uh, or that they deserve. Um, but I think it. As as a whole, I I just find that that Superman ought to be a more satisfying read. In that I think there's, it's it's enjoyable pretty much all the way through. It never meanders. Whereas the Night Quest stuff, you, while I like moments of, of the Crusade, I, I like that Joker story, and I like the I, I think I think we we like the same points there. We like the, the Trigger mm. Twins and the Joker stuff, the silly detective comic stuff that Dixon and Nolan do together, basically. Yeah. The stuff where he's just getting on with being a slightly off version of Batman in a fun throwback yeah. story that's and happening it's, around it's him. not swathes um, of inner monologue that we yeah. know exactly we know what his inner monologue is at this point but there's like in in that run as a whole there's like there's nearly 30 issues and for the and like there's maybe about six to eight that are fun and the rest yeah. just really meander you can see why it wasn't collected before even yeah. though i was delighted when they did bring out a collection of night quest and i bought it as soon as it came out and i did enjoy giving it a reread but it's yeah, it's yeah. It, it's a long chunk that just isn't as interesting as the stuff either side of it, and you know, I, I you, you were talking very positively about Nights End generally. I think maybe because I'm I'm not as keen on that the the mask of, of Tengu arc as you are. It's fine. I'm just it's not really my bag in terms of what it's drawing on, and then. I think maybe it is more because of what comes after. I I feel like at the end when Batman does come back, he's a bit annoyed and reluctant and it and it just doesn't really have that triumphant moment for me except for in that shadow of the bat issue where he's back to just being batman and and doing what batman does i think that issue works well Mm. but i think otherwise it's just a little bit it's a little bit somber whereas you know that moment at the end of return of superman when he miraculously gets the costume back from supergirl after defeating hank henshaw and you get that lovely uh, that double page dan jurgen spread of superman flying away and Superboy yeah. goes, I'm, I'm not Superman, that guy's Superman. Nightfall and Night's End doesn't really have a moment like that for me. And I think that's that's why, it, it, as I say, doesn't quite stick the landing. But, you know, yeah. this is a, we should we should emphasise, I think, that this is a storyline that gets, I think, a lot of criticism for being a silly 90s overblown crossover. But I don't think it deserves that. Cri- like, I think my no. criticism of it is, is, like, is like micro-criticism of moments rather than yeah. the overall concept, which I think is terrific and is a... A really good way of reminding you why you need Batman. Um, yeah, I think in my sort of summing up with it, I was I was thinking about Death and Return as well, and I think what it is for me, I I love them both. Nightfall will always have a special place in my heart because it was the thing that drew me into comics. But I think for me, Death and Superman at Death and Return is far more consistent. But I think the thing for me with Nightfall is that the the highest highs are a bit higher but i'm also ready to accept that the lowest lows are also far far <laughs> lower than you get in death and return i think there i think there are moments in nightfall that do me under and they they are incredibly hard work and particularly when he's in the asbat suit when he's gone when he's made that switch and he's become full villain full rogue it's like i just said we don't need page after page of inner monologue. We don't need to know what his motivation is at this point because it is quite clear and it is being defined by his actions. So I fully accept that. But again, it's you never forget your first time. And Nightfall was that that it was that trigger. It was that thing that brought me into 
a world that I wanted to explore and find out more of and just absorb and go back and find out how we got to this point and find out who these people are and how they got to that point. So yeah, I, I it's problematic in places and it's not for everyone, but you will never stop me loving it. So there we go. So um, yeah, I think that's a nice bit of nostalgic catharsis. <laughs> Get your feelings out on that one. Um, I'm I'm curious as to what what we might do next after this if we do another one of these. We could look at Grant Morrison's Batman Run, or I don't know if there's other. There, there were other big '90s storylines, but I don't know if they're. These are the big two that sort of have that. Mm. I mean, you've got Spider, you've got Clone Saga and Spider Man over at Marvel. Although that's, I think that's very much a me and James kind of thing. I've got no mm. interest in 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 um, Emerald Twilight, the, no. where, where they did a similar thing with Green Lantern. No. Um, but I think we'll, you know, if uh, we enjoy doing this, so if if you guys enjoy listening to these, I think we will probably do another long read chat at some mm. point. Um, yeah, thank thanks Dave for joining us. Uh, where can people find you if they want to find uh, you talking and and writing about stuff? I'm on uh, Twitter at David Hartrick, um, and anything I do, I I don't. I'm not fortunate enough to do enough to split it across multiple <laughs> Twitter feeds, so everything will be on there. But um, also, my my day job is Ockley Books. Um, so if you are football or sports inclined, do have a look because there's all sorts coming up, and there is of course the charity book we mentioned. Yeah. Real. So yeah, very much go and check that out. Um, thanks again for listening. Hope, as I say, hope this wasn't an annoyingly long ramble. It's slightly longer than the Superman one, but Nightfall is slightly longer than Death and Return of Superman, so I think it's justifiable. Uh, <laughs> and thanks again for for those of you who back us on Patreon. Uh, as I say, it, it, this episode basically exists for you guys, so uh, thanks very much for that. I hope you keep supporting us, and if you let us know if you do enjoy this kind of thing, because we'll do more of it if you do, and we won't do more of it if you don't, or we might do it anyway and just. You know, you can like it or lump it. Um, as per usual, obviously, you can find Cinematic Universe, the the regular podcast, over at cinematicuniverse.com. Um, and you can find us on uh, Twitter at cine underscore verse. Uh, we're also on Facebook and all that kind of thing. But uh, Joe has got a pre-prepared spiel for that that he does at the end of the regular episodes. So uh, I'll you can you can go to the regular episodes to, to hear all about everything else. Uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you again sometime. See you later. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 